uh, as early as the 1720s, uh, London Jews who had prospered in trade and finance began purchasing or acquiring country homes. In doing so, they followed a well-trod path. The ideal of gentility derived from the lifestyle of the landed elite, and the acquisition of a country house was a prerequisite for newcomers who wanted to stake a claim to gentlemanly status. Benjamin Disraeli's paternal grandfather, Italian-born Benjamin Disraeli, uh, who had prospered as an importer of Italian goods and then as an unlicensed stockbroker, leased a large country house at Enfield, north of the city, from the early 1720s. And Benjamin's father, Isaac, a minor man of letters, lived at Bradenham Manor near High Wycombe, Buckinghamshire, from 1829 until his death. His son, who was 25 at the time that Isaac began to lease the house, lived there for extended periods. So Benjamin Disraeli was no stranger to the countryside. Disraeli's acquisition of Hewenden Manor in 1848 came about in very different circumstances. Benjamin, unlike his father and grandfather, was not a man of means. Indeed, the very opposite was the case. In his late teens and early 20s, he speculated disastrously on credit in South American mining shares about which he knew nothing. The ensuing debt, with its mounting interest charges, weighed heavily on him for decades, despite infusions of money from his wife and his father. Before being elected to Parliament in 1837, which shielded him from arrest for debt, he was pursued by sheriff's officers and faced the threat of debtor's prison. In 1841, his debts totaled over 22,000 pounds, an enormous amount for the period. So however strong his ambition in politics, he was never in a position to purchase or even take a long lease on a country home. However, his climb up the greasy pole of politics and the shortage of able Tory leaders in the Commons made his purchase of a country house imperative. The background to Disraeli's descent was Sir Robert Peel's support for the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846 and the split in the Tory party that it caused. Disraeli, who arose to prominence in the campaign against Peel, emerged as a leader of the so-called country party, that is, the party of the protectionist Tories. But how could Disraeli, who was not a squire, either by virtue of his descent or his ownership of land and, uh, land, and was moreover MP for Shrewsbury, an urban constituency, how could he lead the landowning interest? He needed to represent a county where, like that where his father's house stood. The Duke of Portland and his family, the Bentinks, agreed to help him out, viewing their aid as an investment in his political career and the future of the Conservative Party. Hewenden Manor was for sale for £35,000. They agreed to advance him in secret £25,000, in exchange for which he would pass on the estate's rents to the Portland family. At any time, they could withdraw the loan, as in fact they did in 1857, and leave him with the debt. He was able to raise the remainder, some of which came from his inheritance from his father, who died in January 1848. The contract for the house was signed in June 1847. The general election was in August 1847. The sale was completed in September 1848, 
and he and his wife Marianne moved there in December 1848. Two days after the final papers were signed, his wife bought him what she called a rustic hat to mark his transformation into a country squire. He later recalled that being elected for his county was, quote, the event in my public life which has given me the greatest satisfaction, for it sealed, at least in theory, his admission into the landed elite. Yet his triumph was less than complete. While he appeared to all the world as a landowner, fully qualified to lead the country party, he was, in fact, a tenant, obligated to leave his home if and when the Bentics wanted their money back. I should also add that, ironically, his triumph coincided with the election of his friend Lionel de Rothschild to Parliament for the City of London, and with the introduction by the new Whig Prime Minister, Lord John Russell, of a bill to exempt Jews from taking the oath of office upon the true faith of a Christian. The property that Disraeli purchased had belonged to the distinguished antiquary John Norris, whom Isaac and Benjamin had known since their move to Bradenham a few miles away. The house was an undistinguished, white-stuccoed, late 18th century building extended from an earlier medieval manor. Its classical Georgian features were not to Disraeli's taste. He was an admirer of the Gothic revival, then a style in full bloom. And in 1860, his financial position having improved, he hired the architect, Edward Buckton Lamb, to remodel the house, a project that lasted until 1863. Lamb swept away its Georgian features, or as Nicholas Pevsner described it, he ruthlessly dramatized what was an unassuming house. He replaced its Georgian features with an eclectic baronial form of Gothic architecture with juxtaposed and exposing angles surmounted by steeped battlements with diagonal pinnacles. The architect gave to the uppermost windows of the 13-bayed garden facade unusual pediments, which appear almost as uh, openings in medieval battlements through which stones or boiling water or oil could be dropped on attackers at the base of a defensive wall. His details, Pevsner wrote, are excruciating. Everything sharp, <laughs> angular, and aggressive. Well, I can think of other reasons why Pevsner would not like the, a Jewish country house than that. He also extended the Gothicization of the ground floor interior rooms and the staircase, changes that were initiated by the previous owner and added to by Disraeli before he even hired Lamb. The dining room, for example, has a heavily molded Gothic alcove, traceried wall panels, and a rib ceiling with small wooden pendants. For Disraeli, the desire to Gothicize his country home was not a simple aesthetic preference. It was a choice with strong ideological overtones. For Disraeli was a Victorian romantic, his romanticism part of a broad stream of conservative, organic thought in Britain that targeted Benthamite utilitarianism, free market economics, and liberal doctrines of progress. Conversely, it celebrated and idealized feudalism, aristocratic rule, and the medieval past. His ideological bedfellows included Walter Scott, Robert Southey, Southey A.W.M. Pugin, Thomas Carlyle, and collectors of old armor, builders of picturesque, asymmetrical, battlemented castles, 
and enthusiasts of the chivalric revival. In addition, Disraeli's racial thinking, with its hierarchical, anti-leveling repudiation of human equality, was in sync with a widely diffused discourse of Anglo-Saxonism. For Disraeli, Gothicizing Hewenden was both an ideological affirmation of romantic anti-liberalism and an emotional claim to rootedness in the past of the landed elite. When the work was completed in 1863, Disraeli wrote to his frequent correspondent, Sarah Bridges Williams, whose Jewish background was similar to his own, we have realized a romance. We have been many years meditating. We have restored the house to what it was before the civil wars, and we have made a garden of terraces in which cavaliers might roam and saunter with their lady loves. Uh, this was nonsense, uh, because the house only dated to the mid-18th century, and not to this age of the Stuarts or the early Tudors or even an earlier dynasty. Disraeli's acquisition of Hewenden enabled him to assume the leadership of the country party in the commons, and then later, of the Tories more generally, when the Earl of Derby retired in 1868. But it did not make him a country gentleman. He could write lovingly of the countryside, but there were ways in which he was unprepared or ill-suited, whether by temperament or upbringing, to live the country life. Remember that Disraeli's adolescence, you see him in early manhood, uh, this is 1833, he had been had spent this time in London. He entered fashionable society as a dandy, a wit, a bohemian, a gossip, and the seducer of women older than he. He shined in salons and at dinner parties, gossiping, flirting, and entrancing women with his extravagant clothes, luxuriant mass of black curls, exotic looks, and wit. However, at the same time, he failed to advance in the all-male settings of London's clubs. He was turned down by the Travelers and the Athenaeum, even though his father was among the founders of the latter. While no longer a fop when he acquired Hewenden, he never embraced the masculine pursuits that occupied other country gentlemen, hunting, shooting, uh, fishing, horse breeding, racing. His true passion was politics and the fulfillment of his political ambition. He once complained to Lord Stanley about the apathy of the Tory MPs, whom he could not get to attend to parliamentary business while the hunting season lasted. To be sure, he could play the role of the country squire when circumstances demanded it, opening schools and harvest fets and the like, but overtly masculine country pursuits never much appealed to him. Constance Battersea, the daughter of Sir Anthony and Louise de Rothschild, who visited Hewenden many times as a child, recalled in her memoirs the pleasure that Desraeli took in his estate. She remembered how he showed with pride the beautiful woods in close proximity to the garden. And I quote from her at length, over and over again, Dizzy bade us pause and admire the sylvan view, as he expressed it, evidently relishing the sweet-sounding word sylvan. He lingered over it and repeated it more than once. <clears throat> but at the same time, she also suggested he was a fish out of water at Hewenden. How he loved the place and how he tried to act up to the character he had imposed upon himself, that of the country gentleman, 
for dressed in his velveteen coat, his leather leggings, his soft felt hat, I don't know if it's the same one that his wife gave him, and carrying his little hatchet for relieving the bark of trees from the encroaching ivy in one of those white hands which probably hitherto had never held anything heavier than a pen, Mr. Disraeli was the squire of the Hewenden estate, the farmer's friend and their representative in Parliament. When the Disraelis hosted a fete for the village children and Benjamin started the children's race by blowing a toy trumpet, she noted the incongruity of the proceedings, a strange mixture of old-fashioned English village life and its presiding genius, a man of marked Oriental lineage and bearing. However genuine Disraeli's enthusiasm for the country, he expressed it in terms that strike me as overly hearty and a bit strained, as if he were trying to convince himself and his listener or correspondent of its authenticity. For example, he once wrote, I have a passion for books and for trees. When I come down to Hewenden, I pass the first week in sauntering about my park and examining all the trees. And then I saunter in the laundry library and survey the books. Disraeli's <laughs> enthusiasm for his trees suggests how keenly he felt the need to articulate his country credentials. The source of this need was not neurotic, it was his correct perception that there were many in his party who never accepted his bona fides as an English country squire. He may have been the leader of the Tory party, and he may have been a favorite of Queen Victoria, but were those who still, there were those who still thought of him as an upstart. I'll offer just one example. In October 1859, the Disraelis stayed with the Earl and Countess of Derby at their family home, Nowsley Hall, on the night before Darby and Disraeli were to speak at an important conservative banquet in Liverpool. At dinner, Darby became annoyed with Marianne, Disraeli's wife. She was known for her outspokenness, her verbal indiscretions, her eccentricity, and her tactlessness. And he humiliated her. Her husband sat there perfectly still, seemingly without emotion. The next day, he used some pretext to leave the house, and he never returned even though frequently invited. Now, I do not know whether the notion that Jews in country houses were fish out of water predated Disraeli. His tenure at Hewenden and his high profile undoubtedly strengthened this perception. It was a perception, moreover, whose power long outlived him. It was still strong in the early 20th century, as the following excerpt from Somerset Maugham's short story, The Alien Corn, first published in 1831, illustrates. The unnamed narrator, a man of letters, is visiting Tilby, the Elizabethan country house of Adolphus and Muriel Bland, whose names at birth were Blykogel and Rabenstein, respectively. Here is his description of the house. The dining room was adorned with old English sporting pictures, and the Chippendale chairs were of incredible value. In the drawing room were portraits by Reynolds and Gainsborough. It was very beautiful and a treat to stay there, but though it would have distressed Muriel Bland beyond anything to know, it missed, oddly enough, entirely the effect she had sought. It not, did not give you for a moment the impression of an English house. You had the feeling that every object had been bought with a careful eye to the general scheme. In short, it was too calculated. Calculated like Disraeli's love affair, with the trees on his estate. <laughs>